I think there's this dissonance or or sort of creative tension between how do you how do you think about the customer and how do you really understand the customer while also the customer does not know what is possible. Is there a way to enable a digital avatar to ask questions in an exploratory or qualitative manner that elicits a really good answer from um, from a person, and um, and then we can transcribe that in real time and uh, and sort of analyze it essentially. From what small companies know and big companies have forgotten is that you need to be testing prototypes all the time, and an MVP shouldn't take six months because that means it's not an MVP. So the idea that you can test things faster, I think, is good. But I, I think there's this, people don't like the uncanny valley of an, of an avatar. They find that really odd. And it is odd. It is odd. Will people talk to a digital avatar? Will they engage with a digital avatar? How smart can these things get? Hi, I'm Mike Green, a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Welcome to Understanding Users. In this podcast series, I chat with digital experts from a variety of disciplines, including user research, UX and service design, development and product management, and there's even a founder or two. I talk to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and the challenges they face in designing and building digital products and services with users in mind. And while many of these conversations are recorded remotely, I'm also keen to get out into the wild and meet my guests face-to-face where possible. So in some episodes, you'll hear me prowling the corridors of UX conferences in different parts of the globe to get the views of speakers and attendees alike. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. I'm delighted to announce that Understanding Users has a sponsor. Have you or your team ever struggled with getting the right types of users at the right time to speak to in your research? Have you wasted hours emailing to and fro with research participants trying to find a convenient time to speak to them? And after all that, have you found yourself speaking to the wrong type of participants for your product? Or worse, simply have participants fail to show up at all to a scheduled research session? Well. Ribbon is a continuous research platform that lets organizations do user interviews and in-product surveys in real time with customers as they use your website or apps. User researchers, product designers, and product managers all use Ribbon to quickly and effectively validate product decisions with real users, helping them build products that attract and retain more customers. Ribbon is an end-to-end research platform, helping you target participants within your product, manage research incentives, run surveys and interviews, and store and share your findings. To start running in-product user interviews or surveys today, head to ribbonapp.com to get started with a free trial. Links are in the show notes. Rob Symes is CEO at Fortel.ai. In this episode, he shares with me his digital career path as a serial entrepreneur and his founder journey so far with Fortel. We discuss the opportunities and risks posed by AI in trying to understand real human user motivation and needs, the resistance he's faced from some corners of the user research community, and the power of actually going out and sitting in the customer's shoes, despite all the benefits that remote research can bring. Finally, he plays my three-card challenge to share his favorite UX tool, favorite technique, and a trend he sees in the future. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. One small note before we dive into the interview. 
A microphone cable made its presence known at a few points on the recording, as you may hear. But Rob shared so many great insights, I didn't want to re-record our conversation and miss anything. So I hope it doesn't bother you. Thanks for listening. So my guest today is Rob Symes, who's CEO of Fortel. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Thanks very much for uh, inviting me. It's great to see you. Could you just tell us a little, little bit about yourself and your role and, and, and Fortel itself, please? Sure, of course. So um, so my background in technology has been for the last sort of 10 years. Uh, my first, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. My dad is an entrepreneur. Um, his his business, his first business was selling horse manure door to door. So it's a little bit different to the type of thing I do. Uh, his classic joke is that, uh, you know, people moan to him that, uh, that their product is crap. And he says that, uh, you should try and sell real shit for a living. But uh, but anyway, the main point is that I've been in technology for the last sort of 10 years. My first business was a recruiting business, which is a great business you start with no money in a bedroom and a phone. But um, the, the business where we sort of uh, made our bones really was a business called The Outside View. So The Outside View was a predictive analytics company that um, tried to build an algorithm to predict which properties were most likely to come to the market in the next 180 days. And I know that your audience are sort of user researchers and market researchers and UX people. So they'll be fascinated to know that we built two products before that that completely failed. And um, we wish we'd done a lot more user research before we built those two products. And uh, and that but that product was um, fascinating for estate agents because they could then figure out which people were more likely to move and therefore which people they should market to. Um, so. So happily, after putting a lot of money on credit cards, that that ended up working, and, uh, and we sold the business to Rightmove. Me and my co-founder Chris sold it to Rightmove in 2016. Um, we stayed there for, or Chris stayed there for about three or four years, and then I stayed there for six years actually. Um, and then the idea for Fortel came, uh, Fortel.ai came from some of my experiences at Rightmove. So. One of the things we did was um, we built Rightmove's first uh, sort of insurance proposition. And we were selling digital contents insurance online, and we wanted to figure out, could you sell broadband as well? And um, because my user researcher wasn't available, I think she was on maternity leave or something like that, I ended up um, doing a lot of the user research, which I think uh, people who've met me think that's a terribly dangerous thing because I didn't really know what I was doing. But um, but the, what I found was I was asking the same questions over and over again to a bunch of consumers who were going through an insurance flow. And because me and Chris are fascinated by both digital avatars and voice analytics, we thought, well, we're asking the same questions. Is there a way to enable a digital avatar to ask questions in an exploratory or qualitative manner that elicits a really good answer from, um, from a person? And, um, and then we can transcribe that in real time and uh, and sort of analyze it essentially. Now we're not sort of saying that this this takes over the role of of user research, but we think if there may be a role for this, and we don't know, this is why these kind of conversations are fun. Um, there may be a role in between sort of surveys on one hand and sort of face to face or Zoom interviews on the other. And um, you know, the open question right now is that well, will people talk to a digital avatar? Will they engage with a digital avatar? How smart can these things get? And so far, we've had quite interesting feedback from a bunch of early customers. So we're we're right back in the mud trying to really figure out what this kind of technology can do. So what stage is, is Fortel in? Is it a kind of, it's a beta product at the moment, right? It's not actually yeah, live we're super. Available. Yeah, we're super early. So we, right. we launched six weeks ago. I think you've had a quick play around with the prototype, have, which is yeah. a bit ropey. Um, and we basically need very brave people who are interested in, testing testing this thing out so i mean we've had a load of people um approach us which has been quite interesting and the diversity of the people who have approached us has been quite unusual so 
we've had an NGO um, working in partnership with this water sanitation consultancy in Cambodia who have asked us to um, potentially do a, uh, a sort of willingness to pay survey with some of the residents because traditionally they would send 30 people or 30 students out door to door knocking on doors then they would collect the survey results and, um, and sort of collate them back into English. Whereas obviously what we can do because smartphone coverage is quite good is to text our avatar based questionnaire to, to these people and um, and then they can answer it in Khmer, which is the Cambodian language, translate, translate it back into English and then provide a report and do it for sort of 25% of the price. So that's one use case. And then on the other hand, completely other random use case is that um, a company is trying to do user research on people driving trucks. So the idea being that um, the researchers are figuring out that they can't get hold of these people because they're driving when the researchers are working and they prefer talking rather than typing. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're deploying our technology to them at the moment for not very much money, but just we want the data to figure out if we can do this. Um, and it looks so far quite good. But yeah, you're completely right. It's a beta product. There's a lot of sort of ducking and diving and trying to figure out where the market is. It's not in B2B. That's probably what I found so far um, because... B2B user researchers could just call out their customers. I think it's probably more B2C and maybe this kind of NGO market because it's multi-language and, and interesting like that. I, yeah, because I was going to ask who the users are. So the idea being it's not to kind of replace user researchers, which will kind of reassure many of us, but it's to presumably augment and kind of allow greater amount of research at scale. Is, is that right? Yeah, I think I think the way we would pitch it is qualitative research at scale. So right. that... Um, I, clearly, you can't get as much insight or feel as comfortable talking to an avatar as you can to a human, even though there are businesses out in the Silicon Valley that uh, one, I think, was called Replica, which is sort of a manifestation of the film Her with Scarlett Johansson, where you fall in love with your artificial intelligent being. Um, I don't think that's, that's going to happen with this. I think that insight is generally, is probably a human thing, but asking questions doesn't have to be. And... Um, I also think that user research classically is all about trying to understand what people think when you can't trust what they say. So the insight being, well, just collecting data is not good enough. You have to understand what people mean behind what they say. And is, is a machine able to both look at body language, facial expressions, micro expressions and intonation um, in interesting ways? And I think that's probably where the technology goes over the long term, although I don't think it's here right now. Right. Yeah, because I tried it out a few days back and uh, you basically, so I created my own uh, sort of survey, my sort of mini discussion guide that says the questions I wanted. And then I tested it on myself. So there was an avatar. Is it Jad? The avatar was Jad. Um, yeah, very friendly avatar. Jad. Yeah. Very friendly, slightly unnerving experience because you're obviously aware that it's not a human being, but it was a few times you, you were kind of not sure. Um, and then you basically speak your responses, right? So Jad asked the questions, you speak the responses, and then that's that's recorded. Yeah, that's exactly right. So so it's just an avatar asking you questions that you can program in either using a generative generative tool like ChatGPT or just on your own. And then and then the the sort of user answers those questions. I think where it gets more interesting perhaps is that one of the biggest problems with user research is that especially if it's um unmoderated is that people will just go through it as quickly as possible to get their reward whether that's an amazon voucher or a payment and what you really need and, and what we're interested in building is this idea around well you know tell me more expand on that please rather than you know two-word answer so the the whole point and you know this is much more your area than it is mine but qualitative research seems to be around 
not just what people say, it's the silences and what they're thinking about and how they're thinking about things. And so I, I think the idea that there's a smart prompt with the AI seems like a really important and fundamental thing to build. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that with with the questions you did, you wouldn't have had a website to have a look through. But the idea, I think, would be that you could show a Figma design and you could see where people's eyes were moving or see where they were moving the mouse while they were answering your questions. And that, I think, uh, will probably add quite a lot of insight at some point, but we're not quite sure exactly how to do it, which is, which is why we're having lots of fun conversations with lots of different types of people. Yeah, so you're moving from a kind of discovery, generative research, kind of general qualitative questions to actually usability testing, broadly speaking, where yeah. you're putting a design and, and a prototype in front of someone and getting them to use it. That's exactly it. And I think that, I think our, in, our, in our last business, as I said before, we we made the mistake of of building of building something out in a large sort of scale before we knew exactly what the use case was. And I think we're sort of, we're a hammer that's trying to find the appropriate nail. Um, and But but it's interesting because I, I don't know if you know Marty Kagan out in the Silicon Valley, but it's sort of product guru, Marty Kagan. He, he talks about the fact that good companies don't build what their customers ask for. They build what their customers can't imagine. And... And I think that there's this, all this always this tension in market research, which is we're trying to sort of ask customers what they want, right? But often they don't know, especially in tech-enabled products. So I think it's it's this thing about reading between the lines, like trying to figure out what people may want when they don't know what's technically possible. Um, and and there's, the, there's the kind of cliche, the Henry Ford comment about faster horses, and uh, Steve Jobs famously always talked about kind of yeah, n- n- don't ask customers what they want because they won't they won't give you an answer. Well, yeah, there's a fun much. there's a fun story about that actually. So um, so the Palm Treo, which you probably don't remember, was the precursor to the smartphone, and um, Nokia and Motorola at the time were the people who had the biggest market share in uh, in smartphones, and they they asked their customers um, what they thought of their new smart device because obviously Nokia had amazing technology actually they had smartphone technology far before Apple. And um, people said, love the device, um, lose, you know, keep the keyboard, lose the screen, right? And so this is, this is, this is why um, we have to really think about the questions we ask, because the answers may not be the appropriate ones, because they, customers don't know what they want. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it's reading between the lines, as you're saying, and it's the kind of the, the, the gaps and the silences, which are as revealing as, you know, the need behind the need. It's like not what people are saying, but what they actually mean by that. Tell me then about kind of, so as the tool, I mean, obviously the tool is very early stage, but at the point that the videos are recorded, so you kindly sent me the kind of link so I could watch myself back. But in terms of me as a you know researcher or part of a product team looking at that insight that's been captured, what can I then do with it? I mean, can, can yeah. is the idea to generate transcripts or do kind of tagging or thematic analysis or something? Yeah, so so the real idea is that it's it's meant to be comparative. So ideally, so if, if you'd sent, you know, 12 people through that survey you'd, you would have done. What we would have done is uh, given you the videos, but we wouldn't just do that because what's the point in just giving you videos? You might as well have done it yourself. We'd give you the videos, we would have transcribed them in real time, and then we would have scored it against a quadrant or a or a theme that you you wanted us to do. So, that, so in the example I gave earlier around the Rightmove insurance um, product, what we did was we scored it against a, a sort of quadrant which said... We, we tried to classify what someone said into were they a supporter, were they um, a critic, were they disinterested, or were they developing the idea? And then the idea is that you can look at that report, click on the video, 
and um, and then sort of have a look at those clips. And you can obviously watch the whole video if you want to, but the idea is that people are time poor, so you can sort of synthesize that. And then the research can use that information to make better decisions. But but it's, I suppose the bit, and I'd be interested in what you think, um, whether, you know, transcriptions are good because they're quicker to read than it probably is to watch video, but really what you need is you need the next stage from that, I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, yes, tr transcription, as you say, is a, it's good to capture, but, you know, what, what the teams want and ultimately what the business that's then making decisions based on the insight wants are the kind of, what are the key insights, what are the, which you can then prioritize and kind of make decisions based on. Yeah, and, um, the, and the, problem, the problem with this exact point, right, is that all machine learning companies, and of, of which we are, have the cold start problem, right? Because what we need is we need loads and loads of data, to be able to classify things better and put things in buckets and make it useful. But what most people will say to us is, can you give us lots and lots of examples where you've done this before? And we say, no, because we need your data to be able to do it. So it's, right. um, it's a classic, classic machine learning problem. And the nice thing with our last business was we could use publicly available data, whereas with this business, we need businesses to sort of say, yes, we're brave, we, we want to have a crack at this, really. Yeah, absolutely. And and what are the what are the risks and downsides of this? I'm just I'm sort of thinking aloud here. Like, as a, I suppose. Well, I suppose one risk is that if the system generates kind of false insights or draws like a bit like ChatGPT, you know, you have to still pass mentally what you're receiving back and not rely on it too much. So it's at this stage, it's it's a, it's a crutch and a scaffold rather than it's a replacement for humans doing the work. Yeah, I think the I think there are lots of potential downsides to to avatar based technology. Actually, I think yeah. the first is that um, we become less human. Right, we're already we're already a little bit less human because we're always looking at our smartphones all the time, aren't we? So the idea that we're going to talk to humans less and less and avatars or our phones more and more um, feels like a slippery slope that we're already sort of descending down, doesn't it? Um, I think the my my sense really is that this type of tool is best in areas where it's hard to get hold of people or people are busy or people prefer talking rather than typing. I don't think it replaces the the humanity and the empathy that is needed to make good product decisions. So I, I think that I think that anyone who thinks it's the panacea that they don't have to come into work every day and they could put their feet up and watch, you know, Better Call Saul on Netflix is is wrong. Um, I, I think that in, in you mentioned chat gpt clearly there's a problem with hallucination there this idea that mm -hmm. it's it's you know the smart bullshitter in your lectures or seminar when you're at university who actually hadn't read the book but was you know the boris johnson of uh i was gonna philosophy. say they're the people now running the country sadly but <laughs> well yeah yeah quite right and, and i think that probably that probably should change but um but i think it's important that that it's it's like anything right it's a shiny new thing and yeah. people are very excited about shiny new things. And having done this type of thing for 10 years, I think the most important thing is, we call it the broken glass test. Would people walk across, across broken glass for your product? And at the moment, we haven't found that yet. We haven't found the exact use case. I mean, some of these NGOs would, you know, it's really useful for them. We can understand that. But I, I really, I think people should be really thoughtful around ChatGPT3 because there's a lot of bad writing in the world. And this is just going to exacerbate that problem. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. No. Totally. And and what's the you talked a little bit about the NGOs and some of the other kind of examples, but generally, what's the when you've put it out to uh, you know sort of beta test, if you like, to end users? What's the what's the feedback been like from? I'm particularly thinking of the UX community. Sure. Are they Quite threatened well. by this? Do they, do they feel kind of resistant to it? 
Yeah, definitely. So that's been quite fun. So, so I, I actually had a lovely lady, but she, she just sort of, we were having a sort of 20 minute conversation and, um, <laughs> and she got quite aggressively pissed off about it, which is, which right. is interesting. It's, it's, it's sort of, um, it's always interesting to see the polarization that this kind of technology can give you. Right. Because I think, I think she felt like it was, it was sort of a, uh, I don't know how I put it, but it was it was a slight on her skill set. It was a slight right. on what she spent thirty years learning, and the fact that you could program in a survey, and then this bot would speak to you in a non empathetic way. Um, felt she felt like it, it sort of misused users' time, um, which I, I think is a, I think is a fair I think it's a fair criticism. Um, but on the, on the other hand, we've had we've had some people in in the UX specific community. Who are very interested in what we were talking about earlier, which is this sort of eye tracking, facial expressions when you're going through a Figma. Because what small companies and big, what small companies know and big companies have forgotten is that you need to be testing prototypes all the time, and an MVP shouldn't take six months because that means it's not an MVP. So the idea that you can test things faster, I think, is good. But I, I think there's this people don't like the uncanny valley of an of an avatar. They find that really odd, and it is odd. It is odd, and whether there whether there's something where you need a cartoon or whether you just need a voice, I, we're totally open. We're not wedded to the fact that it has to be an avatar. We, I suppose we got excited about it because we think it's pretty close to humanity, but actually that might be worse than it mm. being human. So so far in the little tests we've done and the little paid trials we've done, generally people have responded quite well. But there have been some people who've just not interacted with it at all because they just find it weird. Yeah, but I guess the one of the benefits is with an avatar or cartoon or whatever you know device you use, you can uh, you know it's it's more diverse. It allows you to reach a more diverse audience. You don't have the you know you can have racially diverse avatars. You can have you know obviously male and female at the at the click of a button. So in terms of you know researchers and their kind of profile and demographic, that that makes it easy. Well, that that's exactly right. So in the in the Cambodian example, you know, we are clearly choosing an avatar that that suits, and they are speaking in their language, and that's something that's you know would I suppose from a cost angle that's really good, but also just because it's a person who's speaking their language, it clearly will make will make it better. I suppose that's the hope, right? We don't know this stuff. I, I think anyone who tells you that. They know where AI is going to go is is talking rubbish because it's changing too quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you mentioned there the the the, the Cambodian language. Uh, I guess another thing, and I think I watched one of your videos about the multilingual capability of, of Jad or you know his or her compatriots. Um, that this can be done, you know, across the world in any language, very straight, very easily. Yeah. So one. So one of the. Um... One of the people that contacted us um, after after the sort of series of hopefully vaguely humorous videos we did as a launch campaign was um, I probably can't mention who they are, but they're a multinational company that everyone will have heard of, and they are spinning up new markets all the time. And Asia has been a big push for them over the last year. And they obviously they don't have user researchers in that country, and they have they've had their budgets cut because of the economic situation. So again, that's that's something where let's say you're launching a product in in America, but you need validation in other parts or other markets. You might do your big user research study in America, but you might augment it with you know Fortel or Jad um, going out and sort of you know sending it out to a bunch of people over there. And the question is, is it better than a survey, or is it better than you know is it better? And my sense is probably yes, because 
people will open up more when they're talking than they will filling in a questionnaire. That's my view. But it, I think everything's got a use case, hasn't it? I think uh, I think it's not going to fit for every every type of place. No, of course. Um, and are there competitors in this space? I think you mentioned one at the beginning. I mean, broadly, this is the first tool of its kind that I've seen, I think. Well, I mean, avatar technology has been around for a while. So, um, so you know, Synesthesia are, you know, are clearly leading the way when it comes to avatars and we plug into various types of sort of avatar technology. Um, we don't really think that our place is to make the avatars better. We think our place is to figure out how user researchers or market researchers can use it to, to help them. Um, but I think there are a bunch of people playing with avatars and trying to figure out where it would work. So so one one company that and it wasn't in the market research space so we sort of weren't sure whether we should, you know, be interested but someone in the NHS was saying, well, if we could talk, if we could get someone to explain what their symptoms were before the GP came in, uh, sorry, before they met the GP then would that be helpful? And my view was, well, part of the point of the GP is that, you know, to have a level of empathy about a problem. So I'm not sure. But given the fact that you only get seven minute meetings now, I think I think you might end up that way. But I, I think there's lots of there's lots of competitors in this sort of insight space um, that are trying. I think cl- the clear opportunity is in video analysis, transcription and insight. And there are loads of people trying to figure that out, definitely. And loads of smart people. And that that will happen. It will happen very fast. Tell me about the kind of founder journey. So it sounds like you're a sort of serial entrepreneur. Um, and you talked a little bit about kind of the, the genesis of, of uh, Fortel. But, um, you know, what's the journey been like overall? Kind of what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? Um, what's fascinating for me doing this the second time around is how it doesn't get easier at the beginning. The beginning is a miserable, difficult, mind-numbing, um, emotional roller coaster that doesn't get easier. And I was very surprised at that. I thought I had this cracked. I thought I was quite tough. I could figure it out. I'm pretty good at selling. And uh, you know, I've got a good track record now. But the problem is no one cares about your track record, right? They care about what you're, what you're going to do for them. And so... It's actually been a little, to be honest with you, it's been a little bit lonely because I used to run a big team at Riot Move, 100 people, lots of meetings all the time. It's got momentum. And that's what you're needing to build as a first, you know, as a founder, right? You need to build momentum from scratch. So, you know, the fact that it's just sort of me and Chris, um, you know, is is quite challenging again, right? There's no two ways about that fact. And you have a lot of conversations where you, you know, you're sort of brought in as a curiosity and that's fine, right? That's all well and good. And sometimes that leads to customers. But, um, but there's a lot of frogs to be kissed before you find your princess, if I'm not mixing my metaphor there. Um, so, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly not for everyone. And given that I've now got two kids and I'm married and I'm in a very different mindset and headspace than I was 10 years ago. And, but what I mean is I think you need the same level of energy um, the second time as you do the first time. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and what about the next uh, three, four, five years and beyond? Kind of, what are your aspirations for for Fortel as a? Well, as I think entity? that's a great question. I we don't know, right? So you know, the, the truth is, our last business in some ways was an honourable failure. So although we exited to a FTSE hundred company, we certainly didn't build a multi billion dollar business. Um, you know, it was a, it was a good product. It worked. It it makes right move money to this day. That's fantastic. And it made, you know, all of our investors money as well. So in a lot of ways, it was a win, but it wasn't really what we wanted. So so what we're trying to do now is we're not raising money. So because, you know, we're fortunate enough not to need to right now, 
we're sort of bootstrapping it to a place where we try to find a real need. So we, we would love to be both working with the UX community and probably the market research community. Um, and we're talking to a number of the big market research companies because they, they clearly have scale and um, they have those, those opportunities. But, you know, what I would, I'd love to be the brand that has integrity around not just overselling the AI and actually finding a use case that really mattered. Um, because having been in this market for a while, I think there are a hell of a lot of charlatans um, that talk a big game and sort of under-deliver. So that's really, if, if you would say, what would you like to achieve in five years? It wouldn't really about, be about revenue. It wouldn't really be about um, the cleverness. It would be about we've solved a real problem. So that would be it. And I'm going to ask you a question now, bearing in mind you're not from a UX background, if I can put it like that. Sure. I mean, yeah. it, how, how, in your view, um, can product teams ensure they always have their users in mind when they're building products and services? It's a great question, and it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because the truth is, and to use my, my sort of Rightmove example, because Rightmove is a fantastic company, but the, the product team is quite a long way from the user. So, you know, they're not the account manager who's going out and seeing the estate agent in that case every day. They're certainly not seeing the consumer very often. And, and this idea that you can keep the, uh, the customer in mind is, is a really interesting construct, right? Jeff Bezos famously uh, had an empty chair for the customer when they had product meetings. So, so I, think there's, I think there's this dissonance or, or sort of creative tension between how do, you, how do you think about the customer and how do you really understand the customer while also the customer does not know what is possible? And, and I think that I, I was very keen. I'll tell you a very quick story. When we started The Outside View, I made this, uh, our, our designer, who's a wonderful guy called Yaksek Rev- Revkovsky, who now works at Depop. Um, I made him put it on a suit and tie. He'd, ne- he'd never wear a suit. And, um, and he's from Poland. And I made him traipse around the streets of England going into estate agents and trying to understand their business. And he says, I think he would say if he was on this podcast, it was a horrible experience, but it was was most most transformational for him because he got to understand. And you had to sit in their offices. You had to see the furniture. You had to understand those types of people before you could make a product for them. So I'm not sure everyone has to wear a suit and walk around, you know, Slough Central to try and find estate agents. But I, I think that's an interesting process to think through because I think on Zoom specifically, I think it's very difficult to get a sense of what people are and who, what they want as well. So I, I think it's something that we should strive for. I think it's important. Do you know what? You're absolutely spot on. And I think it, it, it bothers me, if I could put it like that more and more, that research is becoming very reliant on remote um, sessions only because you know your state agent example there's numerous examples I've worked across for example UK government departments where going into a court of law and seeing how the kind of court process works internally or going uh, you know into a into a hospital situation and sitting with people there there's no substitute for that uh, you can talk to people remotely as long as you want yes and it's obviously valuable and there's insights but I think there's no substitute for also having the direct in person. I think that's right. And uh, did I see a stat, and you'll know this better than me, but is it now that 70% of user research is now done completely remote? I haven't seen that stat, but it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I, I think that's true now. I think I think that might be market research, but I think it's qualitative research. 70% are done in so uh, in non-mad men 
environments, you know, non-mad men sort of uh, hotel rooms or focus groups. And, uh, and I do think that's a problem. I mean, I, I spend all my time as a founder trying to go to offices to meet people because that's where you, it's not, you know, yes, you probably are more persuasive face to face, but it's really about trying to understand the environment because the reason people buy things is, is not what the reason they say they buy things. It's often to, you know, to sort of help with a fear or it's to solve a different problem that they won't want to express. And that is the, that's the beauty of user research, right? If you can tease out those insights, you are so valuable for the CEOs that are going to invest the money based on those, that research. And kind of thinking again into the future, what do you think the future holds for um, user research, user experience kind of in general as, as a discipline, the digital kind of um, design field? What would you say over the next four or five years? I think the key really is this sort of not to change what works and what clearly works and has worked for a very long time. So you mentioned um, Henry Ford earlier with his uh, horses analogy. You know, the truth is that Henry Ford was fantastic for probably 10 or 15 years, but then his obstinacy stood in the way of of succeeding. So Alfred Sloan, who was a great consumer research guy, um, brought out a bunch of products that that eclipsed, that eclipsed Henry Ford, right? So so I, th- I think the idea is that all this kind of crazy AI stuff is just a tool. That's all it is. It's just some cleverness that can help you either make yourself more efficient or ask a different type of question. So I don't think the, the fundamentals of user research are going to get shifted because it's really about asking questions and trying to understand, you know, what to sit in a customer's shoes. Um, if, if these tools help you do that, that's fantastic. I think everyone should be sort of acknowledging it and everyone should be understanding it and everyone should be, you know, playing around with ChatGPT and maybe doing a bit of Python coding and figuring out a little bit about machine learning. That's, that's all well and good. But the fundamental thing about trying to ask people questions and trying to understand what they actually mean doesn't change and it never will. No, that's absolutely right. I, I totally agree. Um, right, final thing then, Rob. I'm going to get you to do my three-card challenge. So uh, I've got three cards here. We've got the Ace of Hearts, the Queen of Diamonds, and the Jack of Clubs. And I've written Tool, Trend, or Technique. So if I can get you to pick a card. Uh, the Jack. The Jack is a Technique. So um, tell me about a, a kind of technique you use in your work, maybe you and, and your colleague Chris, uh, maybe UX related, it may not be, but something that kind of you find useful in your day-to-day work. It sounds really simple, but, um, and this is really back when I was running quite a big team at Rymove, um, the thing that I found was very important because I was sort of the MD of that business was if you came into the meeting, and I didn't always succeed with this, but if you came into the meeting and you set the agenda, you put the slides up and you started talking, you were always going to get far less out of it than if you were able to let the others drive and then ask questions towards the end. Because because the spotlight's on you as an MD or a leader of a business, um, there's a tendency that it sort of overshadows other people. And so the technique I try and do if I'm in those type of meetings now is to really police myself to talk less rather than talk more. Um, I don't always succeed. I like the sound of my own voice as much as the next person does as evidence with this podcast probably. <laughs> but uh, but the idea that you can listen and not dominate the conversation feels like an important thing. And do you know what? 
from a user research perspective, that's kind of one of the golden rules. Talk talk less, talk as little as possible. Let your participants speak because that way you get the most insights. Um, brilliant. Two more cards. Okay, the queen. Queen is trend. So we've, we've touched on a little bit, kind of a few things, but what trend do you foresee in, in, uh, in this space over the next few years? I think what's interesting is that chatbots have been around for a very long time. So if you go onto any mortgage broking website, for example, you'll see a chatbot and it's absolutely crap, right? It actually hinders you more than it helps. But I was talking to, um, it's a great company. It's an online uh, furniture retailer recently. And his whole thing is that the way people make decisions at the moment on websites is is quite archaic, really. If you, It sort of hasn't really changed um, from you know, the year 2000, for example, when Rightmove was, uh, was, was first sort of started. So I think the trend is this idea that if you can ask questions and you can have a dialogue with someone in the same way, like a great furniture salesperson would have done in, you know, the 1960s or 70s when you walked into a store, um, that opens up a lot of opportunities for personalization. So if you can say, I'm looking for a, you know, a three-seater sofa, and we can, we can then say to you, well, you know, antique or new or this color or that color. And we can start trying to understand what you want in a, in a non-linear fashion, in a non-just, we're going to show you the whole world and then it's up to you to filter it. So I suppose my, my, my takeaway for the trend would be it's, about, um, it's going to be less about keywords and more about conversations. Mm, interesting. And a lot of the government services that I've been involved in over the last few years, that sort of triage effect where you're asked a whole bunch of questions. Some of them seem actually very sort of basic or inane, perhaps some of them. But of course, the whole point is by the time you get to the information that's being served to you is based on what you've answered. So it's it's much more personalized. It's much more relevant. And you're not left searching, as you say, like filtering, particularly on you know department store websites where you can spend hours hunting for things. Uh, and the last one is the Ace of Hearts, which is a tool. So um, I'm going to ban Fortel, I'm afraid. But yeah, I, okay, <laughs> I won't. I won't. I've tooted enough of my own horn. Um, I, well, I like Miro actually. Um, we've had quite a lot of success with Miro, and I think the when I was first shown it a few years ago, I I sort of sniffed a bit because I thought, well, it's a kind of a whiteboard, right? But I've, I found that because now we do so much work remotely and, you know, especially in bigger teams, I, I've been quite impressed with it. And, and the idea that you can have concepts or show things and you can all have a sort of chat round, almost like you're, you know, sitting around a fire chatting about it. I quite like that, actually. So, yeah, I'd say Miro is, is quite a useful tool that I've, I've been uh, surprised how much I've, I've liked. The other tool that I'm starting to hate is Slack. And I've, I've, I kind of, I've, I don't know why, I don't know why I've started to hate it, but I think because I've got so many other ways of communication, I, I want to ban it. But Chris likes it, so we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. <laughs> yes, it has its, uh, but then it saves emails. I mean, I, I, I try and keep emails to an absolute minimum these days. Slack is much more instantaneous, but I agree, you can get Slack overload. And then somebody says, I sent you something, and you're like, well, which channel do you send it to me? Is it on Slack? Is it on email? Is it WhatsApp? <laughs> is it a Google Drive link? <laughs> Um, indeed. Um, Rob, I really enjoyed our chat. Thanks so much for taking the time to, to speak to me. Um, final question, where can people uh, find out more about you? 
So they can find out um, more about me on LinkedIn. That's probably where I spend um, the most sort of publicity time. Um, and and they can just go to fortel.ai. So uh, that's it's a pretty ropey early website, um, but uh, but it's got the videos with me having fun with Jad and Jade. Um, so they can have a look at those. And uh, and yeah, we'll be building it out and probably hiring some people in the next few weeks. So it'll probably become a little bit more professional. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Understanding Users podcast. I hope you found something of interest that you can take away and use in your own role or organization. And special thanks to my guest for this episode, Rob Symes. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share this episode more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Links are in the show notes. You can find out more about our sponsor, Ribbon, and their rapid continuous research platform at ribbonapp.com. Links are also in the show notes. Join me again next time while I'll be talking to another experienced digital professional and asking them to share their wisdom, tips, and knowledge. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered.